everyone! Before we start, I wanted to let you know, if you would like to watch our whole service, head to our website, that's dc2.me, and from the media drop-down, click Sermons. You can watch our whole service there. And now, here's this week's sermon. Good morning, Discovery. My name is Zach Krieger. I'm one of the pastors here. And if this is your first Sunday being here, I'm just delighted to let you know, this is a church where we welcome those who doubt. And we welcome those who are struggling in disbelief, who don't believe. This is a place where we really feel like, man, we're just all, we, we want this to be a place where all are welcome, no matter where you are on the spiritual spectrum. And in light of that, it's actually at the, the foreground of this whole sermon series that we're in right now called Demo and Reno, this whole idea of deconstruction and reconstruction of a spiritual life. And I think the uh, topic that we have today is something that affects all of us. Um, real quick, too, before we get too far in, I just want you to know on the QR codes on the back of your chairs, you'll see a link on that link tree that just is a space to ask questions. And the last week of this series, we'll have a time where we'll have a panel of folks on stage and we'll just be responding to, not necessarily answering, those questions that you're asking. So as we're going through today, if you're like, this just burns inside my soul, I want to talk about this, please let us know and we'd love to talk about that in a couple weeks. But the particular topic that we're on today, I think, is a topic um, that affects all of us. It's a question that I think is just really heavy, and there's some light parts to it. Um, there's some heavy parts to it, but that question is this. Why does God allow suffering if he's there? And this question can take a lot of forms. The Broncos haven't beat the Raiders in how many seasons now? Why, God? Why? I saw a commercial yesterday that Chick-fil-A now has a pimento cheese honey chicken sandwich. Why, God? <laughs> Why would you allow that? And I, in all seriousness, do want to give you a heads up. Today's kind of like a rated PG-13, maybe like rated R type of thing. If you have little kids in the crowd, don't worry. It won't be like that graphic. But it is heavy. Because when we talk about suffering, it's important to me that we look it right in the face. Because I think sometimes Christians or churches get a bad rap of like, we're so happy all the time. Like that's the main thing we're trying to get to all the time. When in reality, lament is a melody that's playing in the undercurrent of every day for those of us that follow Jesus. And so there are hard things in the world that you have to hold in tension if you're a follower of Jesus. And they hit at different points in life. I, I don't know about you, but when I was a kid, I remember being taught about this concept of prayer and praying to God and asking him for things and then not having those things happen and being a little bit bewildered of like, then what's the point of doing this? The remote control car that I wanted, I do not have. God, why? Like, where are you in the world? But we, we grew up. And I remember in college sitting in a lecture learning about child soldiers in Africa. Um, and this is just me, but I was hearing these stories about these kids. They're kidnapped at like the ages of three and four years old and they're given drugs to like totally loop out their minds. The way that they're brought up then, how they're raised is just an extreme violence, sexuality, rape. I mean, horrible, horrible things. And by the time they're teenagers, they're displaying such horrible forms of humanity that it makes your stomach churn. And as a college student sitting in Los Angeles, California going, there's nothing I can do about this. God, why do you allow this if you're there? I continued to grow up. I was a firefighter for a few years. 
And I remember as a department, we were handling a story of a dad who had murdered his whole family in the front yard because he thought that God had told him to do that. And I remember as a follower of Jesus, with a lot of folks at that department who were not going, what do I have to offer in this place? This is just suffering and darkness and evil. I had some friends, a dear friend, they wrestled through a couple miscarriages that were just so heartbreaking. And if this is part of your story, you know that when you look into the darkness like that, it just hurts. And I was at the same time working with Young Life with a ministry called Young Lives. We were working with teen moms, and we had a story of a mom whose, whose cradle for her baby was a pizza box. And she was 14. And, and just looking at heaven going, God, what's your economy with babies? How come some people get them and some people don't? Why? Have you ever held the, the hand of a family member or a friend who is suffering in their last lap towards death? And you know that prayer. God, why is this happening? I'm going to go out on a ledge. I'm going to assume that you've stared into this darkness as well. And regardless of if you're a follower of Jesus or not, there is something about evil and suffering and grief that induces us to cry out to a God who must be there to keep things in check. If evil exists without anything to fight it, this world and this life is a horrific story. Surely, good must be out there. There must be something more powerful that can fight against it. I'm going to go out on a further ledge. If you've had these thoughts, you've also had thoughts like these. Doubt when God doesn't intervene. Despair when evil people move through the world unchecked, ravenously devouring innocence and beauty. Denial that because God doesn't intervene, maybe even that God doesn't answer the prayers that we've prayed in earnest, that maybe he's just not there at all. Some of us have been disenchanted by a paradigm we were handed somewhere along the way, and that paradigm is this. A God who exercises total unilateral control over an evil world. But let me introduce a thought that I think is so important for us today. What if God isn't all-controlling? What if the idea of a God who can do anything is actually a picture of a God that isn't in the Bible? So before we begin to look at the God of Scripture, I want to say with all the passion in my guts that if you have been told of an all-controlling all-powerful God, and in the end have wound up saying, I don't believe in this God. I just want you to know that neither do I, and neither does the Bible. Let's dive in and look at this a little bit together. We're going to start out our teaching today where all good things start at the beginning. We're going to start in Genesis chapter 2, and I want you to see if you can spot the all-controlling God in this story. This is at the beginning of it all, and it goes like this. And the Lord God planted in a garden in Eden in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed. Out of the ground the Lord God made to grow every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food, the tree of life also in the midst of the garden, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. The Lord God took the man, and he put him in the garden of Eden to till it and keep it. 
And the Lord God commanded the man, You may freely eat of every tree of the garden, but the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall die. This is a wild story. There is a God who's controlling. It's a God that has trees popping out of the ground. He's doing some really beautiful things. Two of those trees, he pops out, and they just kind of show up on scene for a second, the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And we don't really understand what their role is until he puts this man in that garden and says, hey, don't eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And in the second chapter of this book that I love, I begin to see a God who right out of the gate is going, I'm not a God who demands control of all things all the time. This is a God who loves to offer choice a God who offers a lack of control. He's not an all-controlling God that we find here, and it seems that he's already given a choice to a snake that we're going to meet in about a minute. That snake has also made some choices. Why does God allow a choice? Love demands a choice. If we don't have the ability to choose, we're just programmed robots. If we don't have the freedom to choose to stay, or the freedom to walk away. We're just prisoners of his. In all this story, right from the beginning, this God of Genesis seems to love love. He seems to value freedom. But what a risk. Things could go horribly wrong. Are are we worth the gamble? Is love worth the gamble? And it leaves us asking a question in the second chapter of the book. So can this God do anything he wants? I've shared this once or twice here, but I have this fun kind of call and response thing I do with my boys, um, particularly at bedtime. And it goes like this. I'll say, do you know that I love you? And they'll say, yeah. And I'll say, do you know why I love you? And they'll say, because I'm your boy. And I'll say, what can change that? And the answer is nothing. And Oaks, my youngest, lately, for about the last year, has decided it's a hilarious response that I say, do you know what can change that? And he'll go, piggies. And I have no idea where piggies came from. (laughs) But he'll jump from piggies real quick, and he goes, God, God can change that. And I think we've been having this discussion for a year now because he just loves to hear the reminder in the response. Because I'll say, Oaks, no, that's, that's actually not true. God can't change that. God actually can't sin. God can't choose to hurt God can't stop love. It's it's who he is. He would cease to be God if he stopped those things. And so my love for you as your dad, God actually can't stop that. God's all about that. And Oaks just smiles. God can't just do anything. He can't be unloving. He can't ignore us. He can't do whatever he wants. Somewhere along the line, we were introduced to this God who is all-powerful, all-controlling. It actually shows up all over the place in church history. St. Augustine, this is way back in the early days of the church, had this idea that God did control everything, that when evil was done by evil men in a broken world, God was behind all of it, controlling it all, all-powerful, as in the only powerful the only actor, the only agent at work. And this idea continued to bubble up till it got to the point where they had one of these massive church councils where they were coming together to decide the hardest questions of the time. 
And the church council at the Second Council of Orange in 529 responded to Augustine by stating this. They wrote it down, which means you got called in the principal's office. <laughs> we not only do not believe that any are foreordained to evil by the power of God, but even state with utter abhorrence that if there are those who want to believe so evil a thing, they are anathema. No, Augustine. God does not choose to do evil in the world. He's de he does not foreordain that. This is the response of the church. And I actually think the problem gets much bigger than what we've started talking about so far. Because I have a confession to make. I am a materialist. And what I mean by that is not only that I have a great talent for consumerism, which, let me just say, I am really good at. But that as a materialist, I believe, like believe, like believe in the material world, often at the expense to any other reality. To put that more bluntly, even as a pastor, I really struggle sometimes to remember that there is a spiritual community that is interacting with ours all the time. God, I'm good with. The Trinity at work in my life, sign me up. That sounds great. What about angels? And what about demons? And what about Satan? Because Jesus had no problem addressing those realities. So why do I? And in Genesis, we see that God has clearly already given a choice to this Satan, this snake. He seems to have done so with actually all of his angels, and some continued to choose God, and some chose to choose something else. So we end up with a cosmos, with this spiritual realm where a battle is raging between the angels who have chosen God and all of the rest who are scattering in all sorts of different directions. In the New Testament, we see these demons, as we call them, dramatically affecting the lives of people. And we also see their interaction with Jesus or with followers of Jesus. And what they have is real. Their effect on the world is real. This is weird to talk about. Just so we're on the same page, I don't talk about angels and demons all that often, and I wonder if that's actually a disservice to myself and to our church, because the Bible has no trouble talking about that world. So why do I? And I am wrestling with that. So if God is not only allowing choice by human beings in the material world, but also allowing choice by angelic beings in the spiritual world, there's a lot of choice going on. There's a lot of risk that he has created in this atmosphere that ultimately is intended to cultivate love. But man, what a risk. So one thing I think we should all be thinking is at some point in this metaphysical cosmos, isn't this God then just as bad? Is he worth even giving more time to? That he would allow for choice and then just compound choices to take us off into oblivion, like some sort of maniacal kidnapper? And the answer to that is yes, that kind of God would be just as bad. But that's not the story of the God of the Bible. This God is a God of love, of choice, of freedom. 
He wanted to create a way for things to be put back perfectly together, to heal things, to redeem, to use the churchy word, but to reunite. He stayed involved in the world past the story of Genesis 3. He began working with a particular group of people, the Jewish people, so that they could be an example to the whole world of what God is like. And the crowning moment of this this Jewish people was the moment that they received the Son of God himself, Jesus Christ, who on behalf of the world and for the world, they received him, and then they shared him with us. This Jesus served as the key change agent to this whole story, someone to show us what life can look like when we take our God-given ability to choose and use it to choose God. Jesus lived a remarkable life. He taught some remarkable things, things that help us to understand God's desire to put the world back together. Love your enemy. Forgive. Live generously. He healed people. He cast out demons. He would cry at his friends' funerals. And in the end, he died a remarkable death, a death that was resolutely committed to choosing the way of God right up until the end. I'm going to take us to another garden, a garden that Jesus was in in Matthew 26. This is a story um, and a place that's usually referred to as the Garden of Gethsemane. But I want you to pay attention to Jesus and the way he's making choices and how he's engaging this conversation. And it goes like this. Then Jesus went with them to a place called Gethsemane. And he said to his disciples, sit here while I go over there and pray. He took with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, and he began to be grieved and agitated. This is the night that Jesus is going to be arrested, the day before he's going to go to the cross. And he seems, according to the book of Matthew, according to most of the accounts of Jesus, keenly aware of what's awaiting him. Of course, he then said to them, my soul is deeply grieved, even to death. Remain here and stay awake with me. And going a little further, he threw himself on the ground and he prayed, My father, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me. Yet, not what I want, but what you want. Then he came to the disciples and found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, So could you not stay awake with me one hour? Stay a week and pray that you may not come into a time of trial. The spirit is indeed willing, but the flesh is weak. And again, he went away for a second time and he prayed. My father, if this cannot pass unless I drink it, your will be done. Again, he came and he found them sleeping, for their eyes were heavy. So leaving them again, he went away, and he prayed for a third time, saying the same words. My father, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me, but not what I want, what you want. And then he came to the disciples and said to them, Are you still sleeping, taking your rest? Now the hour is at hand, and the Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. And Jesus looks to the horizon, and I think he sets his teeth. And without looking at his friends, fully focused on what God has told him to do, he says, Get up. Let's be going. Look, my betrayer is at hand. This would be followed by another prayer that Jesus would pray while hanging on a cross. And that prayer sounded like this, My God, my God, why? Why have you forsaken me? Jesus knew what it was like to ask that question, why? 
But without getting an answer, he continued to choose God. And he continued to choose what God wanted. And he knew an important truth. It is better to know God than to know why. And in the end, it was through his resurrection that a final victory was won. The power of sin was broken and forgiveness and peace were once again extended from heaven to earth. And one thing that we should be asking, if you've heard the story of the cross and the resurrection, is this. If the battle is won, then why is there still suffering and grief? Shouldn't it work for those who say yes to this life of Jesus that they inherit that forgiveness and that peace? It's a really incredible story um, out of World War II about a Japanese soldier whose name was Hiru Onoda. It goes like this. Hiru Onoda's orders were clear to protect the Philippine island of Lubang from an enemy attack and not to surrender under any circumstances. He followed those orders diligently and was still doing so 29 years after World War II ended. Anoda and three other soldiers survived, and they refused to surrender to an allied occupation of the island that began in 1945, and they hid in the mountains for, next, for the next three decades, engaging in guerrilla warfare with local officials. Immediately after the war's conclusion, and again in 1952, leaflets were airdropped over the mountains to let Anoda's men know that the war was over, but they concluded that the news was an allied trick, and they refused to capitulate. In 1974, after Anoda's three comrades had either surrendered or been killed and Anoda himself presumed dead, a Japanese college student was backpacking through the area and discovered Anoda. Still skeptical and loyal to his orders, Anoda refused to surrender until his former commanding officer issued the command himself. Major Yoshimi Taniguchi, who is currently working as a bookseller flew to the Philippines and formally relieved Anoda of duty. 29 years after the war had ended, Anoda's war was finally done. Theologians like to say, we live in a time of already but not yet. And what they mean is that we live in an era where Jesus' victory is already won, but the effects of that victory are not yet fully experienced everywhere all the time. There are still places where the battle rages on. God's kingdom is coming. We are his heralds and ambassadors, but has it fully arrived? Is it completely here? Not yet. But is it coming in its fullness? And is there reason to hope? Absolutely. So I think some of us have been sold a bad bill of goods. God doesn't intervene with his will at every turn. And while he is certainly about accomplishing something, he also seems to deeply care that we have the ability to choose him. And he is willing to let go of control so that we are able to love him. This is a topic that's stirring in you. There's a couple books that I would toss your way. One of them would be by a guy named C.S. Lewis called The Problem of Pain. One that's a little bit more current, if you're like, if you know C.S. Lewis, he can be pretty deep and difficult to read at times. If you're like, give me a lighter one. Um, a guy named Joshua Porter is a pastor of a church up in Vancouver, Washington, and he recently wrote a book called Death to Deconstruction, which is just fantastic. And this is one thing that he says in his book. He says, 
For God to respond to every prayer in keeping with his heart, he would have to revoke freedom, to nullify friendship, relationship, and violate the law of contradiction. As far as we can tell from the scriptures and our own experience, he doesn't do that. Irrevocability is built into the definition of free will. This means that you and I are confronted with life in a world that is wonderfully free, but consequently chaotic, riddled with evil, and set before the inevitability of all kinds of suffering and ultimately death. So have you ever been disappointed like I have when you pray for something and it doesn't happen? Have you ever been filled with doubt when evil prevails in ways that just don't make sense? Have you ever wondered why a good God would allow so many bad things to happen? And have you ever shook your fist at the sky and yelled at God and felt abandoned or even betrayed? I get it. And the Bible gets it. Psalms, the book of Job, Habakkuk, Lamentations, Jesus, they understand too. But sometimes our anger is pointed at a God that isn't the God of the Bible. Our expectation of what God is can sometimes just be flawed. And in reality, we're angry at a God who isn't the God of the Bible. And we're right in our motive to stop believing in that God, but we abandon the search for the real thing altogether. And so the invitation today is this. Stop believing in a God who controls everything. Stop believing in a God who takes away choice and freedom. Stop believing in a God who does not allow the environment in which to cultivate love. Abandon that God. And in the process, you're invited once again to come seek and embrace and be loved by the God of Scripture. You're invited to bring your questions, bring your whys, and know that while some things may find answers, others may not, but you're invited to know a deeper truth in it, a truth that has reverberated through the Bible, through church history, and into our lives today. It is better to know God than to know why. This doesn't mean that your grief and your suffering doesn't matter. It matters greatly. It's important not only for your own story, and experience, but also because God meets us there. He doesn't want pain. He didn't design suffering. If Jesus' prayer in Gethsemane shows us anything, is as God is just as dismayed and grieved by suffering as we are. It's not what he ever wanted, and he's longing to set the story right again. God has not promised that we will be exempt from suffering. He has promised that we will never walk alone in our trials. And we indeed have a Savior in Jesus who understands and has experienced everything that we have. Suffering and grief and tears and all of it. So why do earthquakes destroy hundreds of lives? Why are babies stillborn? Why doesn't God answer every prayer? To those particular things, the answer is this. I don't know. 
There are powers that are still at work in our world. Some of those are human powers. Some of those are supernatural powers. And while God is powerful, he uses his power to allow for choice and for freedom and for love. And this is the risk that's associated with it. I don't know. I don't know why news of God's victory hasn't reached all parts of the battlefront and why he allows the enemy room in places where it just seems like he can stop it. And it doesn't make sense that sometimes he does and that other times he doesn't. I don't know why prayer for healing or a miracle sometimes happens and other times it's just not given. I don't know why patience and faithfulness isn't always rewarded with an answer. I don't know. But I do know that it is better to know God than to know why and to hold on because this is a God who creates environments for love. I would rather have questions that can't be answered than answers that can't be questioned. So bring your questions. We'll have some as well by that last week of this series. We carry them everywhere we go, every single one of us. You do not graduate from learning and asking questions in this life, faith or otherwise. God does not play favorites. He's not hiding. He isn't holding back, but he is waiting in perfect love and in perfect time to see something accomplished that has not yet finished happening. He is still allowing choice. He is still offering freedom and love in the pain and in the despair, whether you wrestle with doubt, whether you live in a place of disbelief, know that you can absolutely count on him for one thing. Like a good dad, he'll just sit in it with you. He's unafraid of the dark and the pain, that, and he just longs to be with you in it. He loves you. He's got his arm around you. He longs for you to be in that loving and quiet embrace as one who just wants to hold you as you suffer. Good in the bad. And I love that the Christian worldview is so honest. Life can be hard. We're not promised a lack of suffering. Hello again or a life that is constantly drunk on joy or happiness. Christianity is not opposed to suffering. In fact, it's a core value. Let me welcome out the band as I finish with a story. This is from Joshua Porter's Death to Deconstruction. He has some beautiful parables that he kind of litters throughout. This one's called The Apprentice, A Snake on the Road. A young apprentice was met on the road by a gliding snake. The apprentice was afraid, so he asked his master, will you protect me from the snake? The master said that he would. The snake reared up, flashing curved egg-white fangs that dripped blinking stalactites of venom. Its scales glittering in the moonlight, and the snake seemed to rise and grow until it obstructed the path before the apprentice. Master, the apprentice said, his confidence shaken. Will you protect me from the snake? The master said that he would and continued on. 
the apprentice slowed to a stop, calling to the master. But I'm afraid that if we continue on, the snake will strike me. And the master turned to face the apprentice, and he said, it will. The apprentice was afraid. If I head back, I can escape the snake's bite. The master shook his head. The snake will be there also. I think I might flee. And the master extended a hand to the apprentice, and he said, come follow me. On the master's hand, the apprentice noticed two puckering craters of scar tissue, a snake bite. Master, said the apprentice, why do you let the snake wander free? Master stepped closer to the apprentice, a sad smile on his face. The snake didn't always bite. It wasn't always a snake. It was made good, free to go this way or that, just like you. The apprentice was angry. The freedom you granted the snake has put me in danger. You say that you'll protect me, but you also say that the snake will bite me. I'm confused and afraid. The master's expression was gentle, full of compassion. Love is dangerous. The snake will bite you, and the bite will be painful. But I've nullified its venom so that the power of death is no longer in it. And again, the master extended his scarred hand to the apprentice. We have a Jesus who suffers, a God who is willing to suffer for the sake of love, for the hope and the costly risk of offering choice. He continues to extend freedom so that we could respond in desire that we would choose him again. Suffering comes for all of us. You never grow beyond questions. Death will be one experience that we all share, but in it all, it is better to know God than to know why. I invite you to stand in just a second. I don't know where you're coming at today. I'm pretty thin with some things going on in my own story, with stuff going on. And I do know that the things in this world that are real are grief and suffering and torment. It's just so real and visceral to the human experience. But it's not the most real thing. The most real thing is that the God who created all of it is wooing every single one of us back to know his love and to live in that peace perfectly. So as we sing these songs, you're invited not just to sing out loud, although men belt them, but you're invited to continue to learn how do we sing these songs as we walk out of this place, not just with our words and voices, in the ways that we live, that we would be heralds of a victory that has already been won and is still coming to every corner of the battlefield. For those that are able, let's stand and sing together.